0: Okay, everybody hear me okay? All right, good. Glad you're here this morning, participating in our worship and the music and the songs. And now we continue that worship in God's word this morning, continuing in 1 John chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me. And we'll be looking at a, just a couple of verses this morning. I had actually intended to close out this chapter with the teaching this morning, but then when I got to the end, there was just something that didn't transition right for me, so I felt like we should hold off on the last two verses of this chapter uh, just for continuity's sake, and so I'll leave it for someone else who may be Ray teaching here next Sunday. But uh, let's just uh, look at this together this morning. I'll read it, and then we'll go to the Lord one more time in prayer. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 26 through 29. So I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And I want you to um, be reminded that we want to look at God's word as those noble-minded Bereans in Acts chapter 17, that as Paul and Silas went to the synagogues and taught there that the Bereans were called noble-minded because they just didn't take the things that they said from Paul, or the things that were said from Paul and Silas. Um, to be the truth, but they grounded them in the truth itself, which was Scripture. And that's what they're commended in doing. They went to the Scriptures daily to prove that the things that they heard were so. So I want to commend you and, and also encourage you to do that as well. And I should make a point of clarification because I will say a lot of times, John says, or Paul says, or Paul writes, but please keep in mind that the author of Scripture is God, and it is the Holy Spirit that has used these faithful men to pin this instruction to us. But when I say that Paul or John says or that they wrote, hopefully you will know that I really mean is the spirit of God through these men that he has written through. And I know you all know that, but it just makes me feel better to make that point of clarification. Uh, So let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer as we seek him in this. Um, Ray, would you do that for us, please? Okay. Okay. Amen, amen, thank you. So last week we had ended on verse 25, and that's why we're picking up with verse 26 this week, but I want to just kind of backtrack just a little bit, um, because what we ended on last week is that promise that Jesus made to us, and that is that promise of eternal life. And that is for those who are his. And he goes and he goes to prepare a place for us as he promises at the beginning of John chapter 14, a place in heaven where we will one day live with him in eternity. And that is our hope as believers, those who have Christ, those who are called children of God, that our inheritance of this eternal life, is something that is granted or given to us by God who makes us co-heirs with Christ. Uh, actually, it had been alluded to in the children's message that Gray gave um, that we are called or made children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, I just want to come back to, to this passage of Scripture. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have very clear evidence in Scripture that we are made co-heirs with Christ. That's why John so often refers to us as children, little children or children. It's uh, to mean that we are children of God. But before this, John gave a warning about the time that we are in, that there are going to be many deceivers um, ending with an ultimate deceiver, the Antichrist with a capital A. And we can know those who are Antichrist, the ones with the little lowercase a, because they will not have a right or appropriate view of Jesus Christ. They can do this in a number of different ways. Some things I didn't really cover last week in the teaching is they may deny Jesus' deity and say that he was not God. Uh, they may deny his eternality. In saying that he wasn't from the beginning, that he was even there, that he was not there with God during uh, creation, that he was not a co laborer, uh, that he is not co eternal with God. They may even say that he is a son of God, but he's one of many sons of God, and even make him uh, to be like Satan himself, that they are brothers. You will hear that come out in some false, false doctrines but we know that he did come in the flesh and he did not leave his deity behind, that he was God and he was there with God. He is co-eternal with him, co-labor with God in creation along with the third person of the Trinity that we'll be getting into a little bit more, the Holy Spirit, and that he he came in flesh and there are all kinds of distortions that are out there, but John laid it out simply for us and said that if you deny the Son and these things concerning the Son then that is to deny the Father as well. If you receive the Son, but you refuse to acknowledge the Father, you don't have either of them. And it goes the same way around. If you acknowledge the Father, but you do not acknowledge the Son, then you don't have either of them as well. They they come together. And it is against these distortions and these false teachings that John is warning children, and I, I put that in quotes here because there was the two... Kinds of children that are called out in the book of John there are the two different Greek words one refers to the children in the general sense of Christians those who are called co-heirs with Christ or or children of God and then there are those in this the status of their maturity level in the Christian faith. Maybe they're like Zach Kiss, and they have just become new believers in the faith. They have a lot of joy. They have a lot of exuberance that is seen outwardly, and they're having received that grace that has been offered them and come to faith and, and repented of their sins, and now they have that regenerative heart, but there's still a lot of growth to be seen in them. There's a lot of growth to be done and growth ahead of them. So that is the type of children that is referred to uh, at the beginning of our cho- uh, of our teaching last week so is those that are saved but the l- level of maturity in the knowledge of scripture and who god is and all of his attributes it isn't quite there yet and they need not to be deceived he wants to give some very clear warnings to them and that's why john is also putting it very simple and he's made it very clear that these are black and white things. There is a clear separation between evil and good. There's a clear separation between darkness and light, clear separation between lies and truth, and we could you know, list those contrasts. We can make a list of all of those and probably go on for a couple of hours about that. He also wanted them to understand that they may have ulterior motives in attempting to bring some along with them, and John, again, that's why he has been very forthright And a lot of people think of John as being this guy who just speaks love and just speaks love. He's some kind of hippie uh, love guru, but that's not the John that I see in the letter of 1 John. He's very forceful with his words, and he paints a very clear picture. You cannot be in one and still be in the other. There's no fence here. You're either in darkness or you're in light. Good, evil, truth, lies. Now, when I worked... uh, For the land management agency we had a DEA agent come and give a presentation to our field personnel and they wanted us to be informed about what to look for if we came upon an illegal dump site and how to distinguish you know what was regular trash um, and you know just household items that were discard carded and what was used for methamphetamine production because there are certain things that uh, were unique to the making of methamphetamine if we came across an illegal dump site. You, you want to avoid this. You don't want to touch that. So that's what he was there to do. But he told us of a story uh, about a Walgreens in Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he lived and worked, and they were called there to investigate something that was reported as suspicious and when he and another agent had walked into the door of the store they immediately saw what the suspicion was there at the front of the store as soon as one walked in was a shelf labeled manager special You know, we see that, that's pretty typical. Uh, But there on that manager's special shelf was all the makings one would need for making methamphetamine. And it was conveniently located there right at the front of the store, and it was also marked down. And they immediately asked to speak to the store manager about this. And when the store manager was asked about what all of those items on the manager's special list were there for, he replied, well, they had taken a recent inventory of the store, and they had found what they sold the most of, and so they decided they would just make that available on the manager's special shelf, and then also mark down the price for everybody so it would be conveniently located. Uh, well, when the DEA agents uh, told him that most of those items marked down and on special were used in the making of, of methamphetamines, he turned white. You know, He told them he had no idea that that was what they were used for, so you can see there that he was not intelligent in the way that this illegal drug was made and he was deceived or he was confused and he had put together all these products and marked them down and made it easy on the illegal drug makers and so he unwittingly uh, put out there things that were combined to harm people and those who operated under nefarious means. And I use that to illustrate here that you know John is telling us Christians that we need to know about God and the richness of who he is so that we have a deeper knowledge of who he is, but we also need to go into our words to see who our adversary is. We need to know about his means and his modes of operation and how we can easily be deceived. To refuse to learn anything about him is to open yourself up to deception, just like you know the poor manager who was selling meth products unknowingly. We need to know what to look for when it comes to things that appear good superficially, but at their core, they are intended to harm us spiritually. And in verse 26, John lays out the reason for his writing these things to them. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He wants their eyes to be opened. He wants that they know the truth, that they abide in that truth, And a couple of verses back, and part of our study last week was this important reminder where in verse 24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's like saying, take root in you, let it thrive, let it live in you. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, don't depart from what you've heard from the beginning, and we we could go all the way back to the old testament you know looking at what the prophets had foretold and who the messiah would be but we also know that John and the others that wrote New Testament Scripture were apostles of Jesus Christ, that they, learn, they learned from him, that they were taught by him, that they, they walked with him during his earthly ministry, that they witnessed many thousands of miracles that he performed and that they had seen him crucified on the cross. And then three days later, they saw him, a resurrected living Savior, and they wrote of these accounts so that they would know so that people would know that he was their Messiah. And this is all that John is calling them to look back upon. Know this from the beginning. This, is, this will stand the test of time. It will, it will be there because God is faithful to preserve it. Trust in what you have heard. Trust in what the word tells you. So we are to let that word abide in us, and we are to abide in him. And then John goes on to comfort them by affirming their salvation, and that's what we find in verse 27. He says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him and I keep referencing back to last week, but there we talked about that one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit that is the regeneration of our hearts. And when we think about an anointing, that's the anointing, the initial anointing that I think about, that God anoints us, that that is his salvation, he washes over us, that we're saved at that point. But then there is that continual Progressive sanctification—we call that call it that a lot—that um, is at work within us, and that we should be walking in. When we think of the anointing here, we may imagine, you know, someone pouring over us like a, a, an oil or something like that. And uh, other times, you may think of the anointing being someone, you know, putting some oil on their hand and rubbing it on your forehead and doing some kind of a weird gesture there. That would be like the physical uh, way of looking at it. But there is this aspect of it that uh, I want to look at, and that is the spiritual anointing that we receive at salvation by the Holy Spirit. And I pulled this verse into the teaching last week, and I'm going to use it again. And that's from Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Because I think that's pertinent here, and that's what I see described when. I think of this anointing rather than in a physical sense how it looks spiritually, um, this internal anointing, the regenerating of a heart that was once rebellious, once as an enemy unto God, to now a heart that is loving God, a heart that would be serving others, uh, desiring fellowship with others, and a heart that is now grieving over their sin. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there in that short passage of Scripture, we see Father, we see Son, we see Holy Spirit, we see the triune God represented in, in all of that, in that work of salvation that God does as it starts out. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not according to works done by us in righteousness, but then there is that regeneration work of the Holy Spirit that almost looks like an anointing there where he says he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And that's what I want to have in mind when I think about the anointing of the Holy Spirit is this act of God in salvation. And I should say act of God, Father God, Son, Holy Spirit because all of them are embodied in that text. Then uh, now coming back to what John says, picking back up in verse 27 again, he says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So the anointing we receive from him that is poured over us in salvation now abides in us. So there's kind of a difference between something pouring over and then something also dwelling within but that is what happens in salvation we are washed and regenerated given a new heart and then he takes up residence within us and that's just an amazing supernatural thing that's really hard to describe but we have his presence in us in salvation he poured out on us richly his salvation and then now he abides in us and what I'm going to say here now is commentary so take it as that but There are some who describe false teachings that were around at that time, and you could also say that they are even around today. In fact, I would say, yes, they are around today, that describe themselves as having this special kind of knowledge or a special truth outside of Scripture that no one else knows because they have some kind of special knowledge, and they may even call it they have a special anointing on them that grants them a special ability to discern something other than scripture, that is truth, that they need to speak to you, that they need to share with you, and you need to be very careful about anyone that comes and says, well, now you've got this special anointing, or I've got it, and now because I'm privileged, um, just take my word for it that, uh, you know, there's a special initiation process or, or something like that, and so I think that is one of the reasons why John is making it clear this anointing by the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about here is not what may be, they may be hearing from some of the false religions because if it is Gnosticism primarily that he's refuting or other philosophies, you know, the ones that Paul warns about in our study of Colossians, that they may claim to have some special truth that is given to them through some special anointing. But that is not the, the Spirit's anointing. The Holy Spirit anoints Regenerates its salvation, but now the Spirit is in you, and that's why I say you don't have need anybody to teach you. You don't need some special revelation from one who claims to have a special knowledge of God. We have the promise of that uh, from Jesus that we have the Holy Spirit who makes His home within us, and that we are not just poured over and then after we dry off, you know, then it's no longer there with us. But we are poured over in that regenerative work of salvation, and then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within. We have the promise of that from Jesus in in the gospel of John. If you want to turn there with me, I've been referencing, I think, this chapter the last couple of Sundays in chapter 14 of John. I think last Sunday where I was um, talking about it was when he promises that he goes in to prepare a place for those who are his, that they will come there to dwell there with him. He, he goes to the Father and he's making that dwelling place for us in heaven and he says, if it were not so, I would not have told you and then he goes on to make this promise to his disciples and to us. In John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And what else does it say? And will be in you. That the abiding presence of God by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, now dwells within you. When you're saved, he gives you that other helper, and that is the Holy Spirit that we are talking about. That are in spirit is enjoined with Him in salvation. And to have the Spirit is to have the Father and is to have the Son. It is an amazing thing that we have this supernatural union with God by the Spirit and through the Son. And it is in Him, in us, that should cause us in to rejoice in that hope that we have of eternal life with Him that we talked so much about at the end of the message last week. But if you're not... One of the things I I just want to point out here, so I'm going to take us down a little bit of a rabbit trail because uh, John focuses a little bit more on something else here about what the Spirit does within us, you know, in terms of being the teacher that we have within us. But I just want to take a moment to talk about the work of the Spirit to also grieve us when we sin. And... I didn't know that Ray was going to kind of put that into his, his teaching this morning about, you know, what would cause us to confess and why we should see something different about our lives. And one of the things we should see that's different by the abiding of the, pre- the Holy Spirit is that we are now grieved by that sin. It is no longer just a flippant thing to us that we could care less about. But when we know we grieve the Spirit within us, we should want to confess that because we are grieved as well. And so it's just something that the Spirit works out in the life of a believer when one is truly saved. And if you are not grieved by your sin, then that should be cause for concern because we should find that what we experience when we do sin, and as John has already said in this letter, we're going to sin, right? And that's why we need the advocate, which is Jesus Christ. But the, the thing that convicts us is we know we've grieved His Spirit when we do sin, we shouldn't find ourselves uh, reveling in our sin without any desire to confess and repent of it. Paul's letter to the Ephesians says this, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Let me give you a moment to turn there and I'll grab some water for myself. <laughs> Let's see. Very clear. Clearly, that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit within us. If you are a believer and you sin, you are grieving the Holy Spirit, and that in turn should grieve you and cause you to confess. To go on sinning and not give any thought to what you are doing and not bearing it, not having it bear on your conscience, then you probably need to be evaluating your salvation. We also find in the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter six. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 17. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, writes, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit indwell our lives, is that we become one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, stated very clearly that the Spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer, and that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. And there's a special emphasis put on sexual immorality here, which we could get into, but this is more to draw the the point that uh, the Holy Spirit is in us, and that by sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and that should cause us as believers to then confess and to be burdened by our sin. And I don't know about you, but when I commit a sin, uh, and, you know, we all sin, but when I do, the grieving that it causes within in me urges me to confess it before God. And there is an awareness of my sin before him and I know I need to come and confess and repent and that is a good thing. And that is part of that sanctification by the spirit of God within us. In Second Thessalonians two thirteen. but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And so I just wanted to go there for a moment to talk about our sin and how that conflicts with the Holy Spirit in us because we find that in Scripture. Uh, but coming back to John now telling us we have been anointed and that we have also have his abiding presence within us by the Spirit. And part of what we get is this. It continues on in, uh, in that verse 27. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Right, so more, John is focusing on the, the teaching component of the Holy Spirit. So I talked about a lot about the conviction of sin, but here John is saying you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, I want us to go back now to John chapter 14 because we already saw there where the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus to be given to those who put their faith in him, that he will be with them and he will be in them. And just a little later in that chapter, Jesus will expand on that in describing one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit within is that we have him as a teacher within The Holy Spirit being a teacher within. In John 14, verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring them to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. And one of the privileges of having the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is that we can look to him to teach us. I've heard it described as leaning on the Holy Spirit to instruct our hearts and that is why in our men's study we uh, will take time to pray for needs of the church we'll take time to lift up praises but the one who prays last always gets the assignment of lifting up to God our time in the word together and asking that the Holy Spirit would teach us and desiring that the Holy Spirit teach us through his word but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. If we can look to the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. If we are in step with the Spirit, you know, Paul writes about this, that we are going to produce the, the fruit of the Spirit, and part of that is that desire and that, that yearning to be in his word and to grow more in the knowledge of him through his word. And salvation, we know it is it's personal. You know, His anointing is a one-on-one between us and him. God's truth is then affirmed in our hearts. And upon salvation and receiving of the Holy Spirit, there is now the capacity for knowing the truth. And that's what I believe John is referring to here. Um, because I, I don't want him to take my job away. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says you shouldn't need that. Anyone should teach you. So it is that... By the Spirit's presence in a believer's life, we can look to the Spirit to teach us. And that way, you know, the things that may be the false teaching and why we remind you to be Bereans about this is because He has really given us His instruction and His all-sufficient, completed Word. And by His Holy Spirit within, we we have the capacity for learning His Word and for knowing and having things revealed to us and don't necessarily need anyone to teach us. You know, John is obviously teaching us and and Paul and the others are teaching and we are told about the importance of equipping the saints and that's why we have pastors and teachers. So I believe what this is referring to is the abiding presence of the spirit within in that personal knowing of God that we can be taught by the scriptures ourselves. We don't need to go out and find some special teacher to teach us uh, just because we like the way their voice sounds or something. No, we have him within and we have his word to us you can go to your word at the personal level and expect to be taught so you have him within you to teach you and to look at it in the context of john refuting false religions the point would be that believers should not rely on human wisdom or man-centered philosophy hearing things taught by those that claim to have the special truth or the special anointing that no one else did that might hold some appeal You know, really, I'd like to hear what you have to say, but that is why when anyone teaches you of the things of God, you should be able to ground it in Scripture. We should trust in the sufficiency of what God has given us in his word and by his spirit in us. And we see the words that John uses there, everything and is true and is no lie. It's almost like a threefold thing that he's describing there. In that, I see John describing the completeness of God and his word that it is everything that we need to test things against, that in it there is no lie, that it is all true. It's what we need to grow in the knowledge of him, and we can trust it as true and not containing any lies. And I have a privilege of going on a a trip here um, to Tanzania with David Dietz and the uh, Institute of Biblical Leadership to teach uh, young men, young pastors there who have churches that they're pastors of and, and they're young, and we're trying to build some foundation there. But one of the tasks that I have is giving them you know, the sufficiency of Scripture and basically how to study the Scripture and why we can trust in Scripture as being the complete Word of God and the inspired Word of God, and that it is, uh, there are no lies within it and we can trust in it. So, abide in Him. Let's come back to that. Seek him and his word is the source of all that sustains your Christian life, helping you live in truth. And you may remember last week we looked at the Greek word for abide and is that meno, and just the word itself to me just sounds kind of soothing, meno, just abide in his word. It means to survive in it or to live in it. You could say thrive in it, rejoice in it. It is to be in it. If you've ever been in the hospital with an illness or a condition that requires you to, to be uh, placed on an IV, uh, I haven't had that happen to me very often, but it makes me think of that. In some cases, your survival is dependent on having that substance, whether it be nutrients or medicine, actually tied into your veins, and really that is, to me, kind of that sense of abiding in Him. We are tapped into Christ, we look to him, the spirit, to be that sustenance, the nutrients that we need to help us survive spiritually, and that it becomes part of you, right? When that stuff is going into you, it's, it's, it's flowing through your system, it's coursing through you now, and that is that abiding sense that I get from that, that word, and even sustains and provides for us. And even though we don't see the word abide in this passage that I'm going to share with you from Psalm 1, so go ahead and turn there, um, I believe it gives us a wonderful illustration of what abiding should look look like. So look at Psalm chapter 1. And this will be pretty much where we end this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the law here is, is the Pentateuch at that time. It's being into God's word, his scriptures, his, his law, is truth. For us on this side of the cross, it is the word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament combined. So that is the instruction to us. That is what we should be tapped into. And here is the analogy that we get in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. When I think of abiding, I think of the roots of a tree being sunk in and being planted by these streams of water. And what are these streams of water? Well, it's just been described. It is the word of God. We look to that as our source of growth, that the one who is abiding is like a tree that is tapped into God's truth, is being like planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and this is what abiding should look like spiritually on you, growing in knowledge and wisdom of God's truth, abiding in Him and bearing fruit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your written instruction to us this morning from Your Word, God, the things that are of Your truth and if there were things of me, I don't want that to be what remains. Um, when we think about that anointing, the the oil that was poured out with a physical anointing, there was a residue that remained there, God, and I pray that what remains here uh, through the teaching is the residue of your word and your truth, and that your Holy Spirit within us would help us to take these things and turn them around in our minds and be able to begin to understand them as we put it into the context of your word God, help us to always be diligent in going to your scriptures and help us to see it with great joy and just loving your word, God, wanting to grow in in the richness of it and how it describes you and what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us and all these things that we have in you. Such a tremendous blessing, such a tremendous privilege to have this uh, in our lives and so we thank you for it, God. And we just pray that we are faithful to it here at this church. We pray that as we teach it, that, God, we're looking to get everything that we can out of it, and we also pray for that in our personal time of study. We don't just come here and look for me or someone else just to teach us, and then we're done for the week, but, Lord, we continue to, to go to it as the source of sustainment in our lives, the, the thing that we need for our spiritual nutrition. And, Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for everything that you have given us in Christ, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.